Resume. Noun. 1. A summing up. Summary. 2. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. Deluxe Comics, Wallywood's Thunder Agents, was like a mid-80s image exodus contained in one book. Where else could you get George Perez, Jerry Ordway, Dave Cockrum, Pat Broderick, Keith Giffen, Steve Ditko, Stan Drake, Murphy Anderson, Dan Adkins, and Rich Buckler between two covers. But also like Image, they couldn't get the book out on anything resembling a regular basis, and it was the title Giffen only lasted five issues on. The penultimate issue had a February cover date, and I should point out February of 1986, since the first issue was November of 1984. I don't even think Continuity Comics released that sporadically. I didn't concern myself with that mind, since I bought the run as back issues nearly a decade after that debut issue. I love the material so much that it sent me on a back issue buying spree, not just of the singer material, but everything. Tower, Archie, that one black and white magazine JCP Features put out with the early Mark Texera art. The one time I went to San Diego Comic-Con, I spent some of my limited funds on low-grade Silver Age back issues. Still working on a set, by the way. And most importantly, to varying degrees, I dug all of it and would go on to follow most Thunder Agents material going forward. Hobgoblin was a cool-looking villain, plus my brother got the imported Secret Wars action figures as a special from Foley's, Texas' version of Macy's. The combination may have inspired him to buy Amazing Spider-Man number 276, the issue with the fake-out reveal that Flash Thompson was the villain. I'm pretty sure the phrase, I'm liking this Joe Brzezowski art, has been used sparingly in human existence, and the Mike Macklin ink certainly helped, but I simply enjoyed looking at the Fury of Firestorm number 47 better than the Blue Devil side of the crossover. I guess it was just more on model and clean. We're in the last year of Jerry Conway's run, and I don't think this period is especially well regarded, so it's maybe the last entertaining yarn before his checking out. I think for reasons beyond my control, this was the end of my Blue Devil collecting in this time period. I believe my flea market source had simply dried up, although I've mentioned my interest waning as well. I might have gotten one or two more out of cheapy bins, but I specifically recall rejecting the exercise $1.25 final issue at a mall bookstore. I'm not sure how many or which issues of the four-part Legend of Wonder Woman miniseries I flipped through at that same mall bookstore. What I do know is that it was a brief Golden Age revival and a stopgap between the pre- and post-crisis ongoing series. Also, I couldn't make heads or tails of the giddy nonsense. And with Misty's Trina Robbins doing an H.G. Peter riff, I wanted nothing to do with it at the time. Honestly, I still haven't read it. Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition number 6. Cover featured Iron Man, Iceman, and Kazar, indicating a month of mort de moi. It started things off with a John Byrne Human Torch, but I found only the drawer to be a draw. Moody, Zek, Hydra was more to my liking. The Imperial Guard entry was intriguing to me because of Phoenix the Untold Story and those Cockrum Legion wardrobe leftovers. Otherwise, there were way too many obscurities and plainclothes folk to hold my interest, and seemingly most of the artists. On Saturday morning, if I happened to be up at 8, 7 central, I likely started my day with the Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes hour. I tend to doubt it though. I love Warner Brothers cartoons, but you could find them in syndication every day of the week. This particularly early presentation on ABC had a lame intro that I don't recognize. They scheduled the Ewoks and Droids Adventure Hour afterward, but I would have favored CBS's Muppet Babies in the time slot, or maybe even NBC's The Smurfs. Those tiny blue guys were a sensation earlier in the decade, though everybody's interest was surely waning by this point. I do recall getting a Smurf white chocolate at stick candy at the Circus Circus Casino in 87 and getting a mild thrill from biting the Smurfs head off. 
I very rarely bothered with Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling because the Superpowers team Galactic Guardians was insurmountable counter-programming for my interests. And again, my sisters got me to watch some local Houston wrestlers, but they never translated to any serious affection for the WWF. Plus, this was the Super Friends season with the most actual comic book heroes and modeled closely on Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. I very rarely made time for CBS Story Break, a short film anthology, skimming titles, only Yes Shin, a Cinderella story from China, and How to Eat Fried Worms stood out. I was much more likely to sit through the ABC Weekend Special. I read the book Benicula by James Howell, but only after buying or trading for a copy of Howell's Holiday Inn around this time period. I'm not even sure I didn't buy a copy of the sequel sequel, The Celery Stalks at Midnight, at a book fair before checking Benicula out of the library. Holiday Inn was one of my first favorite books, about a dog and cat detective team investigating the kennel where they were temporarily lodged for dark deeds. I think the bit was that the cat was a paranoiac who would get wound up by a fantasy scenario and the dog was a level-headed one who would get sucked in watching out for his friend. It's been a while. The mysteries all turned out to be innocent circumstances misconstrued and I'll admit to introductory order bias but I still feel Holiday Inn was the most compelling and moody. Celery was the goofiest and least engaging. Anyway, I'm not sure if I actually saw the vampire rabbit dramatization but feel more confident in Adventures of a Two-Minute Werewolf. Cap and OG Reed Moore's Jack and the Beanstalk and Pippi Longstocking. She was the annoying ginger with the long braided pigtails. Can't forget that one. Looked like a Wendy. The Adventures of Teddy Ruxpin cartoon stands out because I joined my girlfriend's family in shopping for the elusive talking teddy bear at the height of its frenzy as the next Cabbage Patch dolls. Yes, of course, we later put a two live crew cassette in Teddy's back so he would mouth filth for our delight. Also, both watched and had read to me in school the Velveteen Rabbit, a generational classic about transferring all your emotions into an inanimate object that was safer and more affectionate than any human beings in the life bus latchkey kids. In the later morning, NBC was still airing years-old reruns of Mr. T and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Mr. T was one of those figures that I was enamored with as a child, but was made to feel embarrassed for it by my best white friend of the time. Same went for Michael Jackson, which in retrospect was based. But there's a pattern between these two celebrities that I wonder may have played a role. Anyway, I lost my lousy three and three-quarter B.A. Baracus figure early on, but I still have what's left of the more Master of the Universe-sized one. Sans head, an arm, and half a leg. The leg broke at a sharp angle when I threw him in the air and failed to catch him, so I pretended he was a Terminator robot who could stab people with his stump. Anyway, the cartoon had a bulldog with a mohawk and was considerably less violent than my play. As the morning wound down and sports shows started to kick in, I might still watch the littles in my desperation and maybe a little American bandstand. I preferred Dick Clark handling bloopers over bops, especially since they often quit the songs partway through. I much preferred Soul Train and Solid Gold, which was more respectful in their lip sync performances, plus way better dancers. Dennis Cohen acquitted himself better on the third Elvira's House of Mystery. A close-up of her blowing smoke out the barrel of a six-shooter with a cactus in the background. Yes, just as last issue was a transparent ploy to burn off leftover weird War Tales material, this one is pushing out weird Western Tales inventory. As I recollect, as with number two, I got this one cheap at Marauder Books in 1989. I have much stronger memories of this one, though. Probably helped by the Stan Welsh art and the bridging sequences that also incorporated Elvira into the first story, being by Robert Kaniger and Angel Trinidad Jr. 
here. Ballad of Hanging Rock had a lot of violence, some near nudity, and a bit of combined sexualized violence besides. Kaniger was, after all, the Sam Peckinpah of comics. On second glance, I spoke too soon about repurposed inventory, as the second Kaniger story firmly integrates Elvira and is a proper horror story involving corrupt global figures taking an elevator to hell to be tortured in the nude by the devil. It actually isn't much of a story, but Jesus Jess Odleman, another Filipino artist, makes it visually interesting. There's also stronger hints of a subplot, so I figure it for the best issue so far. G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero number 47 continued the book's hot streak with the Larry Hama, Rod Wiggum, Mike Zack team, involving tons of action and a lot of action figures being carried around on stretchers. Also, there's a fake out where Baroness appears to gun down Storm Shadow, and G.I. Joe is the kind of book where that could actually happen. While still telling founding X-Men puberty stories, at least Brent Anderson's cover to Marvel Saga, number 6, kicks it up a notch by threatening to lynch Cyclops and Iceman, or promising to hang them. I'm good either way. We also get the origin story of creepy old puppet master and some Walt Simonson surter action. Next was my first encounter with Tony Stark's origin story, and I'd forgotten just how much of the first Iron Man tale had made it into that issue. Definitely my introduction to the origin that would eventually launch the MCU. I want to say my brother or I had a copy of Marvel Tales starring Spider-Man number 187, a reprint of an early Craven the Hunter story drawn by John Romita, but it didn't exactly edge itself into my brain, unlike the cover to the Omega Men number 38. You see, they started that cover into an issue of Son of the Ambush Bug when they trapped the villainous interferer in that last issue of a misbegotten series to end his nuisance. Now, the actual comic means nothing to me, just the bit. The Punisher number 5 of a retroactive 5 offered another Zack Zimmerman cover as part of an iconic series, but the interiors take a substantial downturn. Where number 4 clearly ran out of space to tell its story, number 5 is just as obviously padded to full length by guest scripter Joe Duffy and new, frankly worse layout artist Mike Vosberg. I know the trains were more likely to run on time at Jim Shooter's Marvel Comics, but a case can be made for allowing the book to run later and keep the entire best-selling creative team intact. It's actually a solid conclusion, although the forced Don Siegel moral ambiguity doesn't make a ton of sense. There's a bunch of people the Punisher should be killing, and doesn't, but I like the bit with the dog. Secret Origins number 2 was another issue to be tossed through at a mall bookstore before getting put back. I'd seen ads featuring Blue Beetle in old Charlton comics, and he was in the one issue of Christ on Infinite Earths that I'd read. Like the Gil Kane art, I thought Beetle looked okay, but was plainly out of date. The yellow goggles in particular were off-putting, but I also wasn't into the blue-on-blue color scheme with the big bug design on the chest. Finally, issue really focused on the Golden Age Beetle with a fin on his head. And yeah, no. Superman number 419 was one of those books I'd see in the quarter bit in 1989. It leaned hard into satanic panic, with the Man of Steel trapped in a pentagram while a Luciferian villain cackled outside its reach. Even Ed Barreto couldn't dump cold water on that heat with his cover, but Kurt Swan absolutely ice-bucketed it on the interior. I still wouldn't read that for a quarter. I'm not 100% certain when I started spending time with my father's family, but if I triangulate via comic book, I'm leaning toward December of 1985. I didn't think we were living in the specific apartment where my half-brother, his half-brother, and a cousin descended upon my bedroom and utterly trashed it in short order. But it makes sense for that to be when I was given a small color television. That would have given enough time for my parents to almost immediately pawn it and lose it so I could then lie about the color going out without my father having time to determine that we'd actually just replace it with a secondhand black and white. Also, I had had to have enough time to get acquainted with them for it to matter when I moved out of state in 87 after about nine months of my stepfather soaking up unemployment checks after losing the best job he would ever have to Reconomics. Plus the whole reason the show had to switch from a quarterly to monthly format is to account for how many roughly contemporaneous comics were added to my collecting experience by my brother's greater means. Anyway, all this is to say that I did not buy Uncanny X-Men number 205 despite a vague sense of having the chance once at my local 7-Eleven. However, the fan favored Barry Windsor Smith drawn Wolverine 
Wolverine solo story, which reintroduced Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers, was still read by myself about this time via Little Bro's copy. I have to confess that I did not hear Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. Despite becoming a kitsch favorite, I don't recall it getting any play locally, and it probably wasn't introduced until Martha's Greatest Hits in the early 90s. The Cure was that creepy looking band I only knew from t-shirts and prints at Spencer Gifts, so I was years away from a proper introduction. The Power of Love would be a Celine Dion song, and I Found Someone was by Cher, as far as I was concerned. Now, your rhythmics I was well familiar with, but not the single It's Alright, Baby's Coming Back. On the other hand, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love probably exploded into pop culture consciousness. It was ubiquitous. If the song wasn't playing, then the video was, or beer commercial aping the music video, or Weird Al's parody Addicted to Spuds. My tastes have changed since, but in 1986, those living Nagel girls were the peak of hotness. The song remains a banger, even after many thousands of plays. I'm a little less sure if the outfield your love was a contemporary listen, or something drilled into me by some hits of the 80s advertisement. If the latter, the brainwashing was effective. Janet Jackson was still Michael's little sister from Good Times until this year. I don't remember encountering What Have You Done For Me Lately, as well as some of the later singles from Control, but I should have been pretty familiar by the end of the year, because that album was inescapable. I was a regular Entertainment Tonight viewer, so I knew they dutifully reported on Prince's follow-up to Purple Rain, the notorious flop Under the Cherry Moon. I don't think they bothered to give that one a network broadcast premiere. I first started seeing bits of it on the ABC Channel 13 late night movie, and I never bothered to watch the whole thing. I don't remember Kiss from its time of release, but rather from sometime between Sign of the Times and its career revitalizing Batman soundtrack. Likewise, I recall falling in love with Western Girls by Pet Shop Boys during the summer of 1988, when I would stay up all night with the radio. Covered Elf Quest number 10 is very familiar, but the Hansel and Gretel style story inside is not, and ends at an awkward point that makes me think the source for this reprint had more pages to work with. I'm fairly certain my brother had Star Wars number 105, a striking mashup of Cynthia Martin, Steve Lee Aloha, and Ken Stacy. However, it was an issue spotlighting humanoid bugs, dread space pirates, and a slew of pink bunny rabbits. It's no wonder that when I saw Power of the Force figures at Circus World, I wondered why they were still making those, because Star Wars was long over. Also, that title is not long for this world. Green Lantern number 200 had a striking Walt Simonson cover with dozens of corpsmen at the main power battery on Oa and was featured in a house ad. The interior sparks no memories, and I think I even missed it when I went back to collect much of this run during its Christ on Infinite Earth tie-ins. Even if I bothered to toss through this issue at a mall bookstore, I doubt I would have gotten much past all these Silver Age goofus villains drawn by Joe Staten. 
Sectors number six continues to look way better than a relative flop of a toy line deserves to. Kind of like how the figures themselves were of exceptional quality, but still couldn't connect to an audience. I know the cover and recognize bits of the interiors, but the story was a miss overall. Another month, another forgettable issue of X-Factor, fourth in a series. I seriously remember Frenzy's Ohatmu entry more than her debut story, and I didn't exactly memorize that either. Ah, the early tales of Artie and Rusty. How little I could care. And I've had a few. In movies this month, FX starring Brian Brown and Brian Dennehy debuted, and while it was a modest box office hit, I believe it found its audience in home viewing. I caught a VHS dub off cable myself. The movie is about a top practical special effects artist being enlisted by the government for a special operation and things go awry. It had a very novel angle on the typical 80s action thriller with a swell cast and was well executed. Unfortunately, five years proved too long to wait for a sequel, so hardly anybody saw it. CTV in Canada managed to get a couple of seasons of television out of their premise in the late 90s. Did Terror Vision ever find an audience? Is it an occult favorite? I don't hear anyone talk about it much. I saw it on a local UHF broadcast, probably Channel 39, where it played once or twice. It's this proto-Tim Burton, plastic, mid-century, nostalgic, heightened reality monster movie that delivers on gross-out effects and sloppy wet puppets. A misused satellite television dish accidentally beams down a bug-eyed monster that begins eating a young boy's trashy suburban family. It's got a slew of recognizable character actors, a B-52s inspired theme song, and it looks great. But like Burton, it's a lot of empty aesthetic rather than engaging characters and story. Wildcats was another cable dub in which Goldie Hawn plays the middle-aged daughter of a famed football coach who finally gets her own chance with a rough inner city team. So Dangerous Minds meets the Bad News Bears. I hate sports, but I like this well enough, helped by its amiable nature and a stacked cast of future stars. Joining veteran leads James Keach, Swoozy Kurtz, Nipsey Russell, Bruce McGill, and M. Emmett Walsh are then-unknowns Wesley Snipes, Woody Harrelson, LL Cool J, Robin Lively, and Jan Hooks. Also, it closes out on an endearingly awful awful rap song, clearly inspired by the Super Bowl shuffle, wherein Goldie beatboxes at the end. Sort of. I think I caught parts of the Hitcher, but maybe thought it was too intense for me. At the same time, the rental box was just a silhouetted hitchhiker on a twilight road, which is pretty boring when Jason and Freddy are stalking the aisles. Also, I kept getting the Hitcher confused with the Hitchhiker, a Canadian thriller TV anthology series that was like the Incredible Hulk without the Hulk. When HBO dropped it, USA Network picked it up for a total of six seasons. So anyway, what exactly the Hitcher was and what relation it had to a somewhat tawdry cable show quashed my interest in pursuing the flick. But I also noted C. Thomas Howell's fearful wide eyes in the rearview mirror on that box cover when I'd go to rent anything but that. I mean, he was Pony Boy. I did finally catch it, and while I respected one particularly ballsy choice, I really expected to enjoy a movie featuring Rutger Hauer and Jennifer Jason Lee more. Hey, I only just realized they were reteaming after Paul Verhoeven's Flesh Plus Blood. You gotta figure Rutger Hauer suggested her. Classy. They did a belated DTV sequel with Jake Busey and a remake with Sean Bean, but I joined the universe in not caring. I had friends who went nuts for House, talking it up in detail. I hadn't yet broken out of my scaredy cat early years, so I had no interest in pursuing it. The severed zombie hand ringing a doorbell, which I think was embossed on the VHS box, and may have even had a sound card, were might too unsettling for me. Or at least I guess so. I still haven't seen Frankenhooker, which definitely had a sound card that said, 
Plus the store I went to had a life-size standee. I didn't rent that because it seemed too corny. And I'm not sure the William Cadavidal didn't dissuade me from House. I know he was in the certified classic Carrie, but not as the lead. He was supposed to be kind of a sappy dork in that anyway. I didn't trust the klutzy greatest American hero to carry a horror picture, believe it or not. I have yet to see an entry in that franchise. I'm pretty confident that I'd seen 16 Candles and Weird Science by this point, but I had not yet developed a dedication to either John Hughes or Molly Ringwald, so I missed Pretty in Pink by at least a year or two. Despite being well-stocked in Brat Pack and those adjacent, I put Pretty in Pink in the mid-tier. It's a bit too dramatic, the music isn't as banging or iconic, Andrew McCarthy's character doesn't deserve the redemption, and gah, ducky. I know this one's dear to a lot of hearts, but for me it's a drag. I mean, I shouldn't be rooting for James Spader here, right? Watch where you walk, Comic Reader Resume has always been a research-heavy show, increasingly so, to the point that some portions are written more than a year in advance. Other portions, though, I only work on right before recording, and my aversion can even cause delays. For instance, that little post-it note I've got that reminds me to read Star Comics' Meet Misty number 4 before regressing. So I read the first story, took a nap, and now returned for the second. It's a two-page gag showing off Aunt Millie's many 60s hairstyles from her modeling days, niece Misty making fun of the oddity and effort, and then she proceeds to go to a new wave club with Spike, who's got a Cindy Lauper circa she's so unusual spiked redhead thing going on. Now, I was still a child with little context for modern fashion, and Trina Robbins was a sort of misfit straight lace in the 70s underground scene, doing a 50s girl comics revival while herself pushing 50. It's hard for me to set aside that now that I'm the same age range that the writer-artist was then, that the joke she'd been building for two pages was at least two years out of date, and targeting an audience that would have been keenly aware of that fact. I don't know if the young girls are still putting a silver rinse in their hair and I'm pretty sure they're trying to bring those low-rise jeans back because I read millennial women warning them not to. Point being, I would have definitely vetted my gag with actual younglings before pulling a how-do-you-do fellow kids. By the way, the last millennials were born before the Phantom Menace and are over a quarter century old so that reference was nostalgia from their earliest memories. You old. The first story was about Misty missing her cast party because a late teen soap opera actress was still expected to babysit. She chastised the twin boys for messing up some of her old and valuable comic books, including issues of Millie the Model and ElfQuest, technically a Marvel comic at this point. In lieu of television or video games, Misty told them a story that was a lame mashup of Cinderella and the Frog Prince, so she clearly couldn't read the room. In the end, her totally straight crush, Ricky Martin, brought the party to her, including a Billy Active album in place of the actual singer, who was back at the real party. It should be noted that despite being a fake Billy Idol, we hear the true lyrics to the chorus of Rebel Yell playing. I was checking for creator cameos in the credits on the outfits and the stories and among the paper dolls, but the closest I got to recognizable names this time was Martha Tomasas, writer of the short-lived Dakota North series, as well as Barb Rausch, who would go on to write Marvel's Barbie series after assistive work on some well-known indies. I was caught off guard by the Sherelle paper doll, because despite a cover appearance, she's not in any of the stories. There are a lot of kid-skewing ads in this issue recognizable to readers from this period, including a sports-themed M&M's illustration, the Spider-Man Power Pack Child Sexual Abuse PSA, the Challenge of the GoBots one where they're bursting out of a TV set, 
an Earl Norum painting for the Filmation He-Man cartoon, an equal time spot for the She-Ra cartoon, the Oreos Trace Maze, the Dunkle Cookie in Milk, in space! The new Crest Pump attending a debut gala, do they even still make that? And Mad Balls. A favorite was the offer of 50 comic adaptations of classic literature for just $14.95, obviously illustrated by a Philippine studio, feeling the pinch now that Warren and Red Circle were out of business. Also, there's a bifurcated ad for the Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera, featuring Jetson's cartoons with a new toyetic pet on one side and Galtar and the Golden Lance on the other. Both were syndication originals and I doubt either crossed my eyes. Galtar was apparently a naked He-Man lift with a little too much sword and sandals in its DNA, looking more like a Ray Harryhausen adventurer in a Black Star or Thundar scenario. Okay, I guess I put off the third story long enough. As part of the talent contest that got Missed You on the Soap and launched the comic series, she's also supposed to shoot a fashion spread for Heventeen magazine. Aunt Millie also got her modeling start in the same building in New York City and accompanied Misty. It's decided that they want to do a mother-daughter style spread and instead of bringing in an older model, Misty volunteers her aunt. However, when word gets out that this is THE Millie Collins, Misty gets sidelined and fumes about it. In story, Millie's meant to have been 20 years retired, but for the record, her flagship title didn't end until 1973. Today, it's almost quaint to think a top model would ever look like Anna Mae Watson when she was surely younger than, well, Trina Robbins for instance. Once you've managed to balance a daily diet of cocaine, cigarettes, and cucumber water, you either die young or get plastic surgery. You don't just shake off that level of body dysmorphia. And we're not talking about some lesser light. Million models like Heidi Klum crossed with Cindy Crawford and had more titles than Spider-Man. That's a special breed of cat that still tips paps to catch her doing bikini cartwheels on the sand at 60, not serving as the Aunt May of a Star Comics teeny bopper. Anyway, Misty internalizes an uncharacteristic Darlene Dunderbeck-like hissy fit over Aunt Millie, hijacking her moment. But when Millie comes back nearly in tears with gratitude over the chance to revisit her heyday, Misty chills and bonds. Despite my grousing, I can see the appeal, especially for me as a Millie Patsy revival enthusiast. Millie was seriously at the center of an entire Marvel sub-universe of teen humor and romance books that should not be forgotten. But also, just two more, thank goodness. Unlike the Punisher, they announced six issues up front and that's what we got. I wouldn't have been able to resist flipping through the New Mutants number 40 at the 7-Eleven with that Barry Windsor Smith cover of Captain America belting Magneto with his metal shield. I doubt Butch Geist being inked by Kyle Baker worked for me though, especially in a story featuring the mid-80s Avengers. It's kind of a wonder that I don't hate Hercules and Submariner for all the limp appearances of that unit. Thundercats number four, having the team fall prey to a tin little Indian scenario is almost cool enough to overcome the family-friendly Jamuni art. There's even a nifty anti-heroine and a baby riff on the Days of Future Past Wanted posters. V number 16 came out of the 89 quarter bin and had a fine Jerry Bingham cover. Though Tony DeZuniga's inks went a long way toward making Carmine Infantino palatable, the book still came up well short from what I wanted in my comics, V or otherwise. I'll also give a quick shout out to Hamster Vice and Ultra Klutz, books that shared space in that quarter bin but never made it home. See how good it can be, babe. 
Nearing the end, my friends, not a lot of resonant history for me this February. I don't remember the people power revolution itself, but the media made a big deal out of the exile of Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos and the extravagant spending of Imelda Marcos. They ran an authoritarian kleptocracy for two decades, while most of the Philippines lived in dire poverty. But all anybody wanted to talk about was Imelda's enormous shoe collection. And just so we don't feel so bad about MAGA here in the States, Imelda returned home and managed to be elected into the House of Representatives from 1995 to 2019, and their son took the presidency in 2022. So hey, what are you people thinking? The other thing was that Frank Herbert died. I never read Dune or had much interest in it, but like the L. Ron Hubbard stuff, Dune had a lot of presence in bookstores of the day. I remember Herbert's work being well represented on bookshelves and themed point of purchase counter dumps for Dune material. The other big one was Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. So Long and Thanks for All the Fish was a couple of years old by that point, but the green dot happy face with the arms were visible in any mall bookstore science fiction section I happened through. The television adaptation might have been one of the few things I would watch on PBS. Except I'm pretty sure I caught it on Comedy Central in the early 90s instead. I did actually read that book, plus the restaurant at the end of the universe. And I tried to start the first Dirk gently before losing interest. I internalized Adams's bemused, slightly Dada writing style. I enjoyed it very much on the first book, but it felt unfocused and less than amusing after that. We were supported on social media by Dr. Ange, Billy Hines on My Way to Bluer Skies, Brad Lenard, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Derek WC, Dr. Irving Forbush, Ed Moore, History of Comics on Film, I Was Joe Is, The Irredeemable Shag, JMT Productions, we really need to look up how to pronounce this someday, Kailash Jwalamuki, Writer and Media in Charge, Keith G. Baker, Master Yoda, Maxo, Once Upon a Geek, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Randy Caldwell, Satin Tights, Ornament podcast, Speaker of the House Kirk Spencer, Superbound, Talk Nerd to Me, and Thirsty's New and Used. They call me Tumane, the ebony lover. I validate the theory when I'm under the cover. Useless spoiled kings, meddling diamond rings. Football. My name's Tarula, I'm a real bad dude. Making sounds and noises that are certainly rude. But when we're on the field, my noises aren't art, like a, and a, or a plain old bar. Useless spoiled kings, meddling diamond rings. I was leader of the team for about a week And my specialty was the quarterback sneak I was sacked and attacked my bag was packed When I got the word in the form of a bird It's the you know, sport now. better than diamond rings Football We once were a team that never could mesh it But now we're something fresher than fresh You think we're jamming and that's a fact Everybody's saying Not us. It's the sport of kings. Better than 
my name is Finch And as you know, I used to sit on the bench Money, food, and necessities of life Those are the things that keep me nice But when I don't get them, I go berserk And act just like a 400-pound jerk <laughs> Beat this out as soon as you can We're just kicking it, kicking it around my man It's the sport of kings Better than diamond rings Football Ha 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 